Welcome to The Grafters Podcast. Brought to you by Reanimate Performance and the Heavy Metal Strength Coach. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of the Grafters Podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming Dean Somerset onto the podcast. He has been a strength coach and personal trainer for 16 to 20 years. He is a certified exercise physiologist, a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a medical exercise specialist, and probably has a million other qualifications that I have failed to mention in here. Um, Dean, welcome to the podcast, my friend. My absolute pleasure, man. It always makes me feel good when people tell me about myself and what I've been able to accomplish. But <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just a, a dude who counts reps in the gym and usually forgets where I am after five. But you know, I try to make the best of it. Uh, how many letters do you af- have after your name as well? Um, I don't know. Uh, I usually just go with the basic ones of like the Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology, then the Strength and Conditioning Specialist because publishers and different people like looking at that one. Um, for the medical side of thing, the certified or the clinical exercise physiologist that just adds that level. So, um, I've taken a lot of other workshops. I usually just don't include the letters for it. And I mean, I'd probably have an alphabet after my name, but I'm one of those <laughs> geeks who just takes way more continuing education than I probably should. But I always figure if I can learn <laughs> one or two things from it, that makes me either train a client in a better way or helps that client actually spend money on training, then the workshop's been worth it. So yeah. I keep taking yeah. them, they keep putting them out there, and I keep finding new ones to go to. So this will be our um, first tangent before the first question, as usual. So um, how do you go about balancing further education with your own coaching? Well, part of it comes down to finding questions and answers based on what my clients are giving me. So yeah. a couple of years ago, I had a physiotherapist who started referring a lot of people to me who had pelvic floor issues and needed core training. So that was way outside of my normal zone of what I would take. So then I started digging deeper into the continuing education rabbit hole of pelvic floor training, uh, low pressure, hypopressive type breathing drills, and all sorts of stuff that would feed into that specific subset of the population. Fast forward to a couple of years ago when I started working in a gym that had much more of a powerlifting and Olympic lifting focus, I started digging deeper into those styles of training. And they're vastly different. I mean, you think about for powerlifting, you're trying to generate as much tension as possible. You're trying to generate as much stiffness and stability and intra-abdominal pressure as you can. Yes. For somebody with a pelvic floor dysfunction, that's the exact opposite of what you want to try to do. You almost need to kind of do a lower pressure, lower intra-abdominal pressure, and then gradually build up the pelvic floor strength in a way that it can manage that. I mean, you could really easily put too much pressure down into a pelvic floor and have bad things happen, but you need to still get a training response. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, how does this style of training or how does this thought process fit with this client over here who's doing this thing or doing that thing? So it's all the same anatomy. It's all the same physiology. It's just what is the lens of the camera that you're using to look at that situation with and how does that change based on the angle that you're taking to get that training response? That was a great answer. Um, So Rian, do you want to go with your first question? Yeah, actually, Dean, I was going to ask you, so how can fit pros close the gap between, you know, being a fit pro and therapist without going beyond their, their own remit? Well, the biggest thing I find is that if it's something that requires a movement focus, then that's right into the trainer's realm of expertise. Yeah. You notice that 
certain areas are strong or weak, or you notice that range of motion is limited in certain areas or excessive in other areas, fantastic. That's the trainer's scope of practice right there. Build strength, build range of motion, build work capacity. But where the water starts to get a little bit muddied is when it starts involving pain, when it starts involving specific tissue damage or injury outside of a normal workout soreness, or yeah. where there needs to be some sort of therapy or treatment given to the client. Now that might be like IMS or manual therapy or whatever is necessary, but that's where that specific focus starts to change between a training relationship and a therapeutic relationship. So when it comes down to something where it's a movement focus, game on, that's training. If it comes down to something where it's therapy focused or pain mitigation, then that's therapy focused. So that's where the delineation usually comes in. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. And then how do you decide um, with someone that does need a referral out who you're going to refer them to? Um, Well, in the intro, you said I've been a trainer for 16 years. So in the same locale, I've been able to establish a lot of really good relationships with physiotherapists, chiropractors, MD, surgeons, all those kind of people. So I I know what they can do. And I've also spent time in a lot of their clinics looking over their shoulders and shadowing them and seeing how they treat or how they approach certain situations, asking questions and forming a good working relationship with as many of them as possible. Yeah. So for that, then I just look at and say, okay, well, you're dealing with this issue. I know this one physio that I was working with who's really good at these specific issues. I want to send you over to this person because we've worked back and forth on a number of situations that are very similar. So here's that person's card. Go see them. They'll contact me and tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, do you feel that personal trainers, coaches, strength coaches um, refer out enough or do you think it's something that people are afraid of doing? I definitely think that there is a bit of a fear base to it because you can always have a therapist who's willing to say, don't train because X, Y, Z reasons, which means that then that trainer has the client that's not coming in to train with them and they're not making money, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you have to look at it from what is best for that client and what is best for that individual going forward. Is it something where they should be training or is it something where they need to kind of pump the brakes for a week or two to get that therapeutic effect and maybe do some more tissue recovery? If it's something where they've been training consistently and things aren't getting better, you might need to pump the brakes. You might need to pull back just a bit and say, hey, let's try a bit of a different approach. Let's do a rest and recovery phase and see what happens. Or you might also need to work on building the relationship with the therapist to be able to say, hey, here's what I have planned. What do you think? How do we get this person a training effect while still understanding and recognizing the goals of what your therapeutic program is supposed to be? And then sometimes you also have to just say, you know what? This therapist doesn't know what they're talking about. Let's get you into somebody else who might be able to do something different. And that's not to slag on therapists or physios or chiros or anything like that. They all are really good at what they do, but some of them have just different levels of training. If I have somebody who only works in inpatient hospital settings or only works in geriatric settings, they're not going to be able to understand what to do with somebody who wants to improve their one rep max back squat. It's going to be something where that individual is outside of what their expertise would be. So if I can get them in front of a physio who lifts and actually knows a thing or two about squat mechanics and knows how to train that up and maybe does some more hands-on work versus just 15 tables lined up, 15 patients and 15 TENS machines with magazines. Okay, well, maybe we'd be able to get a little bit of a different response out of it. So that comes down to me saying, I want to refer you to the person who's going to help you in the best way possible, but then also having a relationship with that person to get the best response possible out of it. And sometimes I got to keep my own ego in check and say, you know what? I don't know what it was best for this person in this situation. I got to defer to the therapist because that's why they're there. 
Yeah. Do you have any tips for any personal trainers that are listening for how to build that team of therapists and that referral network that you have? Honestly, the best way is in a one-on-one face-to-face type scenario. It's going to be tough in the situation that we're in right now, but if you reach out to a therapist or a physio, chiro, whoever you want to say, and say, I want to come see what you do. Can I shadow you? Most of them will be able to say, yeah, you can come shadow for free. That's not a problem. If you want to look over my shoulder, see what we're doing. And the more that you can form that relationship with them, the easier it's going to be to have that back and forth. Offer them free training sessions. Offer them uh, to come and see how you operate in the gym. Go to them and pay for treatment because most trainers are usually a little bit beat up. So if you have an idea to say, hey, I have a shoulder that's just not resolving. I want to see what you can do about it. Great. Now you have the chance to go into it. Pay for it because their time is valuable and give them free stuff because their time is still valuable. But at the same time, it's a way that you can form a relationship in a two-way street versus just a one-way street. I just realized that I used to um, offer to uh, train physios um, about 10 years ago. And I've just realized that I'd forgotten all about that. Normally, it's just me reaching out to them and saying that I really admire your work. But I'd forgotten that that would be a, a thing to do. So thank you for that. Now, um, to get into what's probably an immensely broad question, um, when do you think it's okay to push people through pain? That That is a really broad question. So part of that comes down to what kind of pain, what kind of injury, what kind of training response, and also how many eyes are on that situation along with you. So if you are trying to push somebody through pain, you'd better have a really good reason as to why you're doing it. And you better know what plan B, C, D, and E are all going to look like. So let's take, for example, somebody who's recovering from something like ACL reconstruction. The graft, as long as it's stable and as long as there's no swelling or bruising or anything like that, it's going to be okay as long as you're not doing something ridiculously stupid and over the top. But there's probably going to be points where that graft is sore because as the nerve regrows, it creates a lot of new symptoms and new feelings. And it's going to be something where about that four-month mark, they'll go from saying, oh, yeah, everything feels great, everything feels good. And then the next day, it's like, you know, my knee is feeling way more sore and stiff than it usually would be. So understanding why that soreness is there is one thing. If they're pushing through pain, developing swelling, developing bruising, developing numbness, neuralgia, developing any of those other kind of things, you got to pump the brakes on it. But even then understanding, okay, well, what is pain for this individual? Is this something that's been going on for two weeks or something that's been going on for two years? Are you making it worse with the training response? Are you making it better in the short term or in the long term? There's a lot of questions you got to ask when it comes to pain. So the best advice I can give to somebody is have multiple sets of eyes working on any one patient or any one client to be able to guide you through that process. So you don't have to try to do it alone. Mm. Now I've, I know a lot of uh, personal trainers and some of them have said to me that they, their clients never ever get injured. And um, I'm here to readily admit that some of my clients do get injured. So Dean, I was going to ask you the same thing. Do any of your clients ever get injured? Yeah. And I I will preface that by saying that most of my clients are medical referrals. Yeah. So they're injured already. My goal is to try to make it so that they get injured less or get better as best as they can. But even then things happen. I mean, I've had a couple of clients come in who uh, on their warm-up set of an exercise, they completely forget what they're doing because stress of life, stress of whatever, and they're going to do a hang clean and they round their back to grab the bar and stand up, and then they tweak something in their lower back. It happens. Yeah. Or 
we'll be doing a plyometric drill or a bounding drill and they kind of overstride and they don't quite land properly and they tweak a hamstring. That happens. I mean, when you're active, you're going to have injuries. My goal is to keep the injury rate as low as we can and then try to be as smart about training processes and progressions as possible. But every day that that client steps into the gym, there's a risk they're going to get injured. If you're willing to say that you, you never have a client who gets injured, one, you're probably wrong. Two, you're probably not pushing your clients hard enough to see the training response they're looking for. Yep. Or three, they're not communicating enough with you about what they're feeling after the workouts. Yeah. Um, is there any exercises out there that you will just universally avoid because um, it is a bad movement or is there such thing as a bad movement? Or is it just bad application? Um, <laughs> one that I'm not a huge fan of is if you're doing crossover drills and rotational explosion, with a planted inside leg where you're trying to rotate internally over top of that leg. Um, a, a good way to think of it is like if you're playing soccer and you're trying to be on defense and your opponent goes to your left and you pivot off your left foot to turn to your left side. I mean, that's a good way to tear an ACL. But I mean, I would rather teach somebody how to do a drop step where instead of pivoting off their left leg to turn left, they pivot off their right leg to turn left with more of that hip external rotation. But otherwise I've had clients have a lot of success with pretty much every exercise. There's just individual exercises that individuals aren't ready for and need to work up to. Yeah. So a, a great example of that is any overhead press work with a client who's stuck in thoracic hyposis. They're just not going to be able to do the overhead press well until they can get their spine into that extended position to get scapular upward rotation to get overhead without yeah. creating massive impingement issues at the shoulder or cranking their lower back through the TL junction or just making it look like a really big struggle that doesn't need to necessarily be that big of a struggle. Can we get a training response from the individual from a different exercise that's similar, but just different? Great, let's do that. We'll use the different exercise as much as we need to. The only clients that really need to do set exercises are power lifters and Olympic lifters. And for them, we can do a lot of accessory lifting to find different ways of going about it, but we just have to be smart with how we're designing the program. Do you have um, a specific battery of assessments that you would give to every single um, client when they're first beginning this whole training process? Or is that an individualized thing depending on the person? Um, it's kind of individualized based on the person coming in and what they're dealing with. Yeah. But let's say I have a client who's had a hip replacement versus um, a young track athlete versus an older guy who wants to play hockey with a lower back injury. All yep. three are going to be very different scenarios and all three are going to need different assessment processes. So mm -hmm. the same goes for shoulders, same goes for if somebody's coming in, even if somebody just wants to lose weight, but they have no medical history and are young, they have a pre-existing medical history of stuff like hypertension, diabetes, whatever, and maybe they have somebody who has chronic obstructive pulmonary disorders. All of those situations are still going to be looking for weight loss as their main goal. So we'll, I'll still keep things like nutritional questionnaires, body composition testing for all of them. But then it comes down to, okay, well, what do we do after that? Do we do a cardio testing for the COPD client? Do we do uh, blood pressure testing for the hypertension client? Do we do movement testing for the client with no medical issues? What's their previous history look like? And then how deep down each rabbit hole do I want to go? And the essential point of an assessment is to say, what do I want to start with with this client? For each of those clients, if the weight loss is the goal, the number one thing we need to get in the training response is caloric burn, strength, and some higher heart rate where we can actually burn some calories. 
then we're going to work on nutrition along with them. So is in the exercise program, do the individual exercises matter as long as we're getting that goal of burning calories? No. For that young client with no medical issue, great. Let's have fun, throw everything at that person to see what they can do. For the person with COPD, we have to take into account things like what's their training heart rate? Do we need to look at oxygen saturation levels? If they have an O2 sat meter, then we can look at actually having them train in a range where they're not dipping below like 92%. If we have somebody who has hypertension, how high can we push them before their blood pressure gets to an unacceptable level? So those metrics are going to determine how the training program goes forward. Do you think every personal trainer and strength coach should do a movement assessment with a client before they begin training? Um, I think they should do some sort of a movement assessment just because you never know what the client's getting into. But if anything, it just helps you to refine what your training program is going to look like. If I were to have 10 clients come into the gym and say, okay, I want you to show me a bodyweight squat. I would have probably five that would be able to knock it out of the park and five that would struggle one way or another. So my goal is for those five that knock it out of the park, let's add load, get a training response. Great. For those five that are having troubles, let's figure out how we can get them a better training response versus putting them into an unsafe situation that might increase the risk of injury. So maybe that means that before I give them a barbell on their back, I give them a dumbbell in their front and have them squat to a high box to be able to figure out what that pattern looks like. Maybe we need to regress that into a bear squat or a rock back or work on specific mobilization or bracing before we get into doing a squat. But the goal is the same, it's to get a training response. It's just knowing where our starting point is going to be to be able to get that response. Something that I've noticed with um, therapists is they will, or strength coaches in general, if a movement is painful or let's say they've got hypermobility syndrome, something like that, um, they'll tell someone to not do certain things like don't do yoga, don't do any kind of overhead pressing. Um, And I don't particularly ascribe to telling people what they can't do. I want to tell them what they can do, what they can progress with. I'll tell them what to be careful with. But I'm all for Mm -hmm. telling people that, right, we're going to get strong here, and that's going to deal with a lot of the issues that you're having. Would you be in the same boat as that? Or would you tell people, no, you can't do that. That is forbidden. Um, We're going to do this instead. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of telling people what they can and can't do. I'm more like, let's try to find ways to be successful. So with a lot of clients, if they're like, I absolutely want to do overhead pressing. Okay, cool. Let's find ways to make it work. Um, If you have certain issues that are resisting you to get to that position, I'll lay it out. I'll like, look, if you want to overhead press, here's the two or three things that are standing in your way of doing it without pain problem and getting the training response you're looking to do. Fantastic. If I address that and say, here's what we need to work on to get you into a better position, so you can get the training response you're looking for. Awesome. If I just say, no, you can't do that because I said so, then I'm kind of an egotistical jerk. Uh, it's pretty much me saying, well, my desire to have you not do this supersedes your right as the client to be able to choose what you want to do as your goals and what you want to do going forward. So the trainer is always meant to be somebody who assists the client to get the goals that they're looking for. If they want to overhead press, cool, let's do it. Let's find five or 10 variations of overhead pressing that work for you, that you feel good with, that you get that training response you're looking for. And if it's something where you want to barbell overhead press, let's find ways to get that happen. If that means that we need to specifically work on certain mobility work or stability work or positional activation, whatever, as long as it feeds to that goal of getting you to overhead press with that barbell, 
know about it and work towards it. But for a client to say, oh, I want to do this. And for me to say, no, you can't ever do that. I got to have a, either a really good reason to do it or I'm just a jerk. Excellent. Um, do you ever find your own training biases? Like from, for example, with me, um, powerlifting, do you ever find too much of your training biases are creeping into your programming and how do you go about fighting that? Well, the, the challenge with biases is that typically they're subconscious. So you're not really going to know that you have biases until somebody points out to you that you do have biases. So one of the best things that I could probably do is train a couple of other trainers who come into things with their own biases and with their own experiences about training and about what works and what doesn't. And then just simply ask their opinion on things and say, hey, what do you think of doing this? Or do you want to do this? What if we were to do this? And then you know, make it more of a collaborative or collective approach versus just a one-sided dictatorial approach. The you have, can, oh, sorry, go on. Sorry. Well, the more I can get people involved in the process and the more I can get for that communication, the better it's going to make me and the better the results I'll be able to get from them. So even if it's something where I'm able to say, hey, do you like what I'm having you do here? And they say, no, I want to do something different. Okay, cool. Take that and say, well, okay, that's what the client wants. Run with it. Yeah. One of the most um, powerful articles I think you wrote, um, I hope it was you because it was a few years ago now, um, mm. you were talking about pushing people into competitions and you were saying that there was one client that um, you pushed through because it was an Olympic event and it might never happen again in their lifetime. And I've always kept that in mind because if someone has a powerlifting competition coming up, and they have a niggle, uh, and it won't go away, um, I'll always kind of step back and just say, look, the competition isn't everything. There's always another one. So I just wanted to use this opportunity to say thank you for that, because I think the article that you wrote there has definitely resulted in less people being injured, and I think that was a really, really big thing. And I, I have no idea what that article was called or anything, but if we can, if we can dig it out, I would, uh, I'll probably share it in the um, episode notes, because it was fantastic. Well, it sounds like a good article, and I hope I did write it. So, <laughs> if I didn't, then you give me some good props, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of clients who their day job is not to work out and it's not to compete. They're doing it as a hobby or as a secondary component. I've got a couple of clients who train either professionally or compete in the Olympics or Paralympics. So, for them, when that day comes, when that gun goes or that whistle blows, they have to be ready. Yeah. And it's not something where you can say, well, we got to just take it easy on your training now. We're three months out and, you know, you're feeling a little bit burnt out. Well, guess what? You're going to because you're getting ready for the, the Olympics. It's something where you're going to have really rough times because to be the best in the world, you're going to have to push in a different way. Yeah. They're doing stuff that I could never do, but I can help them to find ways to be successful at their sport by using sound training principles, using basic physiology and trying to help them get the most out of their training in the gym. But knowing that that person has to push harder than Bill from accounting because he's still got to go back to his office and work for 50 or 60 hours this week to get all of his receivables in. Okay, well, what's the actual cost to those two individuals? If I push Bill from accounting to the point of the same resistance of the individual who's getting ready for the Olympics, Bill's going to be so burnt out, he's not going to be able to think straight when he's sitting in his office which is actually going to be counterproductive. But also the risk of injury goes up as training intensity and volume go up 
So if Bill winds up tearing a quad or screwing up his rotator cuff because I'm like, hey, guess what? It's April. It's tax season. But you know what? You've got this competition, this little regional meet that you paid $100 to register for that you want to completely destroy yourself for. Let's go really hard. No, it doesn't really make much sense in the grand scheme of things. So we have to balance out what's the needs of the individual with what's the desires. And then just make sure that you have frank conversation with them and be like, you know, if you're training for the Olympics, you better be pushing as hard as you can. You better get to that training facility on game day, knowing that you gave it your everything. If you're just training for a regional meet for funsies, I don't want you to die while you're in your training approach for this. I want it to be something where it's like, Hey, you know what? I feel like I worked hard. There's places where I can improve, but it was a good overall process and I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Uh, Dean, with that being said, actually, with you having such a broad range of clientele, do you have a system, well, a particular system, system or process that um, sort of oversees all the clients' wants and needs and like progress, or do you have different systems for your, your different types of clients? Um, I wish I could say I was organized enough to have different systems, but uh, <laughs> it, essentially, it all comes down to just me trying to remember all the details about my clients. And, and I'm the kind of person who I can look at a client and remember their medical history dating back like 20 years and all the variations in the programming that we've done, but then forget their name. Yeah, oh, I, I, I'm exactly the same. Like I'll know yeah. all the issues with the shoulder, but I can't remember how old they are. Yeah, and it's like, hey, I remember six months ago when you were doing this overhead raise with the roller, it was really troublesome for you, but now you're doing it fantastically and you can get your arm over your head. But who are you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I train you, yes? Yeah, well, I know I train you, but I just can't remember who you are. Yeah. <laughs> I know one is hip is slightly painful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, Dean, ha sorry, go on, Ryan. No, 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 I, just, I was just going to say, okay, that's cool, because I was just waiting for the answer, but yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know that a PT session hasn't gone according to plan if I haven't lost count um, around 30 yeah. times in the session as well, because... Um, I'm always paying attention to completely other things other than the numbers. And for some reason, I'll just subconsciously be counting anyway. And then you've miscounted about 10 repetitions. <laughs> like, well, I was looking at what your hips were doing. Come on. Yeah, I usually just tell clients two more and then we go from there. Yeah, yeah like my rule is when in doubt, seven. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's always or seven reps. Like, Unless you're doing sets of five and then it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, or it's like okay go till you get sleepy and or when the movement fails so at that point then we can say you're done yeah <laughs> now, how important is the language you use when someone is in pain um so yeah in fact that's all the question i've got i don't need to talk anymore go <laughs> um it, it, it comes down to a lot of asking that client what pain means to them so because pain is a subjective experience versus an objective thing, if it's something where they say it feels sore or it feels painful, but then just through a basis of questioning the monitor and saying, okay, what is this? How does that relate to over here? If they say it's painful, but really it's like a muscle burn. Like if I was to do 50 reps of bicep curls, my muscles would be a little bit sore. But if somebody was to do a set of deadlifts and they, they said their back was sore from it, but it felt analogous to if I was to do those bicep curls, is that pain or is that just hypersensitivity to feeling anything in your back? And is it something where that feeling is bad or is it that feeling is just a feeling from muscles that we're working? Or is it something where they're getting neuralgia or like a sharp stab or a burn or radiating pain or 
anything along those lines, well, then we have to start thinking about what does that mean for that patient or what does that mean for that person? And then is it something that I can do differently or is it something that we need to tag out and get somebody in there who can do a little bit more pain management? So for a lot of the time, it comes down to just asking that client and saying, what does that feel like to you? Can you describe it for me? And does it feel like something else? How do we actually go through that process of identifying what pain feels like for that individual? Because it is such a subjective thing that we can have so many different variations that it's hard to keep track of. So when people say pain equals bad, well, we have to understand what pain is for that person. If I was to put my hand on a hot stove and pull it away, but then keep going through my cooking dinner tonight, that pain initially was like, ah, bad. Okay, well, well, whatever. I'm back into it and I'm going. Even if my hand is blistering up and turning red and doing all that kind of stuff, I'm still able to do stuff. It's not stopping me. But if somebody was to get their hand close to a candle and all of a sudden drop to the ground, writhing around, screeching pain, but there's no tissue damage, what's the subjectivity of the pain between those two individuals? So some people feel pain really severely and really acutely, and others have that high pain threshold where they can tolerate and push through a lot more. But then it also comes down to, is it acute versus chronic and yada, yada, yada. So the pain scientists are the ones that really should be answering those kind of questions. For me, it's just more like, okay, well, tell me about this and tell me about whether we can make this our livable scenario or whether we can make this better or whether I need you to go and tag out to somebody who can do some more in-depth analysis on this. So when you know 100% that a pain is psychosomatic, how would you go about unpacking that? Well, part of it is how could I know that pain is 100% psychosomatic? Yeah. So that, that's the big question to come back to, right? So if somebody is having pain, there's probably a reason for it. Is it psychosomatic? Is it actually due to tissue damage? Is it chronic pain? Is it hypersensitivity? Is it previous trauma that's causing that psychosomatic response? I don't know. So that's where having multiple sets of eyes on a problem is going to make the job of the trainer significantly easier. Yeah. I would definitely say before a trainer decides to say, I know 100% that this is the case, get a second opinion. Because if you're wrong and you decide to jump in with both feet, you're going to have to suffer the consequences of that, whether they be good or bad. So make sure you get a second opinion or tag out or have somebody else on your team look and say, okay, well, this is this. So that way that you can at least get multiple people saying the same thing. If everyone says a different thing, well, now you can just throw your hands up in the air and walk away because it's like, well, nobody really knows what's going on here. So let's just train them in the best way that we can, knowing the limitations of what's going on. Have you had any injuries that you have struggled with? Tons. I mean, I was a bad athlete growing up, not necessarily bad as in like I was the bad boy, but meaning I was terrible. Um, I mean, I played a, a lot of sports. Uh, yeah, I mean, air guitar injuries, yeah, those happen. But I yeah. played uh, rugby, I played basketball, I played volleyball, did some track and field, kickboxing, and I sucked at every single one of them. So I spent a lot of time in the physio office because I was so bad at everything I did. But that gave me a chance to learn about that side of training. So it wasn't necessarily all in the gym or all on the field. It was in the gym, on the field, in the therapy clinic, doing all the different variations. But at the same time, you learn from all your experiences, you learn from your environment. So it wasn't something where I was able to say, you know, I was terrible, therefore I'm only going to be a therapist. It was, no, I, I want to be a good athlete. I want to actually do stuff, but I wasn't really good at it. So I got injured a lot. I had some really bad back injuries. Um, I've had shoulder and knee injuries, like pretty much everything you can imagine. Which one would you say you learned the most from? Um, 
I don't know if I learned the most from any, but uh, the one that probably took the longest to resolve was my low back issue. Yeah. And even then it's something that's kind of a, an ongoing consistent thing to a certain degree. Yeah. So just having that empathy for clients and being able to say, Hey, I understand what you're going through. I get it, but here's my story and here's why I can empathize with you. Mm-hmm. That goes a long way for a lot of clients to be able to say, okay, well, he at least has an idea of what I'm going through and he can relate. I think my injuries definitely made me a much better coach. Um, I'm not sure about athlete. It just, uh, it's just a gradually slowly decline in performance, but never mind about that. But every <laughs> single injury just helps with that, that empathy. So I think that's why it's so important that um, coaches lift as regularly as possible because when they, whenever they do um, experience an injury, they'll never have a higher empathy because they know exactly how hard it is to try and get back underneath a really heavy bar if like say your back has gone mid squat and you've absolutely wrecked a squat rack on a day pass at a gym which I did once which was uh, <laughs> fantastic went in on a day pass and caused 2,000 pounds worth of damage uh, they didn't want me to go back <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't recommend trainers get injured but there's a lot of benefits that come along with it but it, and that being said don't get injured if you can avoid it Oh, absolutely. I mean, don't go out of your... <laughs> if you can avoid injury for um, your entire career, then you're definitely a better athlete than me and you definitely have more focus during the reps because, yeah, it's brutal. Right, Rianne, have you got another question? Yeah, Dean, I was going to ask him, are you currently studying anything regarding pain and client responses to training? Um, well, I'm digging deep into a lot of the available research on mobility and it, it's actually been a fascinating journey. Um, surprisingly with a a topic that's so ingrained in training there's really not a lot of consensus on what actually works or what doesn't work and there's a lot of variability in the methodology of the research that's actually been done on it so it's really quite interesting to see because we always are told like static stretching does this but in the research a lot of the clinical trials have been very methodologically flawed as far as what are they using for a testing parameter to see these results And even then it comes down to so much of a systematic or situational issue that it becomes a challenge to actually glean any specific effect from any type of mobility training outside of just, well, this feels okay and it doesn't cause any harm or damage. But when you start digging into the research and saying, okay, well, how do I actually improve mobility? There's a lot of possibilities that would lead into it, but there's also a lot of things that just don't have much of an effect that are almost like the ingrained sacred cows of training. It's like, do this and you'll get better. Mm. doesn't actually work so that's the funny thing about it is that there's so much involved yeah that's just incredible as far as the variability on it yeah that's really interesting actually because there is a lot of things out there especially with different sports like i'll do this for your mobility and then some people here are just like well it doesn't do anything but i'm just gonna do it anyway and for a lot of people mobility is just frowned upon and i wonder if it's because a lot of it isn't you know backed up clinically as of yet because of these variables yeah and i mean like the big one that i could think of is everyone says well if you can't squat deep and you got bunt wing curly then it's your hamstrings so stretch your hamstrings well you can stretch your hamstrings till you're blue in the face and it's probably not going to help you get a deeper squat unless you're like really 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 restricted one way or another Mm. because the hamstrings play such a limited role in reducing range of motion for a squat that it really doesn't do anything I mean, you'd be actually better off to just change your foot position to get a deeper squat versus Mm -hmm. stretching your hamstrings. Yeah. 
Was there any particular movements that you struggled with and had to do um, a great deal of work in order to get into certain positions, like, for example, a squat or, a, um, I don't know, a Jefferson deadlift or something like that? Honestly, I've actually been fairly lucky as far as positioning goes. I can get a pretty good deep squat. I can get a pretty good setup on my deadlift. When I was trying to figure out what to do with my own back, I figured I'd just learn how to really be perfectly set up with the deadlift. So I spent about six months videoing every single rep I did and adjusting my technique and positioning as much as possible. I was able to get to a point where I feel pretty solid on a conventional deadlift. But the one thing that still kind of vexes me is getting into a catch on a clean. And getting into a squat catch like i usually once the weight gets to a certain point it just turns into a power clean yeah. or a power catch so I, I just can't get my brain around pulling up and then dipping under the bar and catching in a squat position it just it just vexes me to no end everything else i can seem to do okay but it's just that thing about you know pull up get down push up it just seems to i can't get the timing on it it's really weird mm. Do you ever, I've, I've just gone completely blank on this. Oh yeah, that's it. Um, so do you ever find, because you're so analytical with your movement and uh, filming every set, things like that, do you ever find yourself overthinking a particular movement and that resulting in movement that's suboptimal? I know a lot of people who would say the last thing that I would think of Dean is overthinking. <laughs> but, uh, but that guy doesn't overthink. He probably just makes things way too simple. But uh, most of the way, it's just like, well, if I have a problem, I'm trying to find a solution for it. If I don't have a problem, I don't need to find a solution for it. That's kind of the easiest way I could approach it. Like if it worked and the rep was good, cool, go for it. Um, a lot of people get way too analytical about things that are the finite 1%. And there's a time to do that. And there's a time to not worry about it. So if the rep looks like the rep is supposed to look like, cool, go for it if it looks like absolute dog poop and we're trying to find ways to make it look like what it's supposed to look like. Okay. Now we got to do a little bit of work. You know, a good analogy is if you're cooking or baking or something like that, let's say you're trying to make a, uh, cookies or a, a cake or something like that. Did it come out of the oven looking like what you thought it would look like? If it did great, you were successful. You don't need to do anything different. If it comes out and the cake looks like pudding, okay, well, something went wrong. Now you got to figure out what's going on with that. But if it comes out looking the way it's supposed to, great. Now do more of that and you'll have success. Yeah. With my powerlifters, what I'll try and do, um, if they're coming up to a competition, I'll have two phases where one will be um, a training phase where we'll talk a lot about um, different cues. We'll try different things. And then what we'll do probably around 12 weeks out is we'll stop researching squat bench and deadlift and we'll just um lock down all the cues um in a bid to try and reduce the overthinking that goes by and um, would you say that that's a sensible thing to do or should we be doing trying new coaching cues all the way up to competitions and things like that um i'd say the approach you're taking is really good and it might be something to say well 95 percent of our time we're going to lock it down and then we're going to have some five percent time for variability to see if we can fine-tune it but yeah, I mean, I would agree there's an off season and an on season. And when you're in the off season, that's the time to play, figure out what works for that individual, do something different and move around differently, try different foot positions and setups. But when you're in the on season, you want it to be so repeatable that it creates almost an autonomic or an automatic movement pattern that the individual just dials up, boom, every single time they hit it the exact same way. You don't want to be coming under the bar between your first and your second attempt changing things up on the fly you want to be able to say okay do it again now do it again 
if it's something that's perfect, don't make it any more perfect. It's already there. If it's something where you're struggling with positioning, footwork, or bar velocity, or hips moving sideways, or whatever, yeah, you might want to actually play with that and figure out what's going on. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's it. And, and sometimes when um, I've got a client that has um, very good movement and they're nailing every single set of their, their squats, their bench, uh, and their deadlift, sometimes I'll find myself feeling guilty because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making any changes. But you do have to realize when something's good and it, it shouldn't be overcomplicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if they're making progress, that's kind of the goal, right? Yeah. If they're actually seeing improvement in their reps and they're getting stronger, then you did your job. Yeah. So now you get to say, okay, keep going. Let's make sure the rate of development is within reason so that you're not pushing so hard or fast that you risk injury or anything stupid like that. If you're not seeing progress, live on a plateau for a little while, and then you might be able to push through it just by accumulating training. If you're not seeing progress and going backwards, and now we can start redeveloping the wheel and seeing what we can get. But if you're actually making progress, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. Keep going. Yeah. Um, so I'm just clicking on this here. Um, so you have a product called the complete, the even more complete hip and shoulder blueprint. Just before we delve deeper into that. I just want to know uh, how you ended up working with uh, Big Tony Gentle Car. Well, it's kind of a, a funny thing. Like back when I first started writing my blog, which was almost like, I think a little over a decade ago, he was already well entrenched into it. So I reached out to him and said, Hey, I like what you write. I was wondering if you'd be willing to have me, you know, do a and a with you and then maybe write a couple of guest posts for your site. And he's like, yeah, sure. Cool. So we started forming just a bit of connection there. And we just kind of went back and forth like a couple of bros and uh, eventually we got to a point where we we're like, Hey, there was a guy in uh, Vancouver who wanted to teach a workshop and he wanted to have myself, Tony, Jeff Kubos, who's also from just outside of Edmonton get involved in it. So we all got together in one environment and filmed that and put it out as a product. And then from there we were like, Hmm, maybe we should do something together just as like two guys who know a lot about what we do and can maybe give some value. So we came up with the, the Dean and Tony awesome workout high five. And we put out a, a, a seminar series where we're just like, we just want to talk about stuff that we really like. And we want to have a lot of variable information. So it was on assessments, correctives, training programs, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really have a specific theme to it. So after we taught that about a half dozen times, uh, we just said, you know, we should actually teach a workshop that has a focus. So he was working at Cressy Sport Performance, which is world renowned for shoulder health for baseball players. I was doing a lot of work with low back, hips, and SI joints, so I thought, why don't we do a workshop on shoulders and hips? It would be a great thing that there's not a lot of people who focus on two joints like that. Everyone usually has a shoulder and a hip, hopefully two, so we figured we might as well put together a workshop like that. Um, taught it about 25 times all over the world, filmed two different variations of the workshop, uh, a level one and a level two, and I guess here we are. Yeah. And how long was the process of putting that package together? Or is it a process that's ongoing and you're constantly adding to it? Well, every time we teach it, we adjust it based on what we feel went well with the previous workshop or the new information that comes out or stuff that we feel is a better fit. So it's something that I think the first one that we taught was four years ago. So we've adapted it, increased or changed it around we did a complete 180 on it after the first version to the second version because we wanted to build up a bit of a deeper dive down into it. So, and even then, since we've been teaching the new version, it's been probably about six or seven adaptations in the last three years. Yeah. 
So, um, in, in with these kinds of products, um, a lot of trainers will get incredibly nervous about putting them out there. Uh, what was the first product, maybe similar to the Complete Hip and Shoulder Blueprint, that you put out, and how do you feel about it now? Well, the first one I did solo was Post Rehab Essentials. So, it was a, a very low-budget project that I put together pretty much with just myself doing all of the work. Uh, filming it on a really crappy camera with me standing in the front of a, a room of 15 trainers in my commercial gym talking about injuries the trainers would normally see. Um, after a little bit of time I, and the money started coming in off of that, then I reinvested into a better camera, professional editing, some actual graphics, relaunched it as a new product. And then since then, it's been kind of a developmental process where every time I want to do a new workshop or new video release, it's hire a professional film crew get somebody who does professional videography, put together the editing on the fly, have somebody develop the website so it looks like it's not just me doing it in the back office. So yeah. spending some money on it and making it into an actual good product has been a really valuable lesson. But it's also something where I, I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't have those early products that kind of developed some seed money to allow me to expand the process more. Okay. And you've said that you've been writing for... Um... 10 years on the blog. How have you found your writing has evolved over time? Well, the early blog posts that I put up are absolutely atrocious. They're terrible. Um, when I, I look back, it's like I had no idea what my voice was or should be or what people would respond to or what I actually wanted to present to the world. So it was just a whole bunch of pretty much garbage. Uh, <laughs> the best way to look at it. Um, but the thing is like, if you're not growing as an individual and you look back on what you did 10 years ago and you think it was still good, then you haven't grown at all. So you should look back on stuff that you did 10 years ago, five years ago. And it's like, what the heck was I thinking? And then be able to say, I'm doing so many different things between then and now that it actually works. So one of the main reasons why I got into writing a blog was at that point in time, I actually tried to get into medical school. So I wrote the MCAT exam absolutely bombed out on the physics component. So the, the chemistry and the physical science, apparently doctors need to know chemistry, who knew? Um, <laughs> but I got in the top 2% worldwide in the writing sample. So that told me that, you know, I probably should be putting some letters to paper and actually doing a bit of writing because I seem to be doing okay with that. Chemistry, no, I'm not gonna spend time trying to figure out how to upgrade that. But getting to that point, that allowed me to say, okay, well, I should probably have a creative outlet of doing a little bit of writing. So that's how that started up. Is writing your favorite medium for putting content out there? It definitely is uh, kind of a key one for me. I, I like doing video stuff once in a while, but talking on camera, like talking to a camera is a lot less e easy to do versus writing on a paper. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of something where there's some people who they just shine when they're on a camera and when they are in front of people or in front of any kind of video, the charisma just comes off the charts. Mine, I'm like a wet dish rag more than anything else. <laughs> but if I can have a piece of paper or if I can have a, a, a word processor or something like that and I can write stuff down, I can throw in a little bit of that dry Canadian wits and humor and make it something that pops up a little bit more versus me standing there monotonically looking like uh, Eastern European shot putter and trying to talk to people about mobility. <laughs> How much time a week will you spend writing? Uh, the first couple of years I was doing it, probably about five to 10 hours a week. 
now I'm doing maybe an hour a week of writing and I'm kind of forcing myself to do that just because the, the algorithms that have been used on social media and share platforms have changed so much that putting up content and video form on things like Facebook or Instagram get lost so fast that I'm trying to put up way more onto my blog just due to the fact that that's how I know that people will actually see what I'm putting up. Yeah. So I'm trying to do a little bit more you know, platform cross promotion and direct writing. But um, plus one thing that I found is that if you put something up on Instagram, it doesn't get searched on Google. And where's the first place that people are going to look when they try to find information on a topic? Google. So if I want to put anything on Instagram, I'm probably going to put something into a blog post with that content from Instagram to make it searchable through Google. Do you put pressure on yourself to get articles out um, at a particular rate or do you wait until an article is finished, you're happy with it, and then you go from there? Um, I actually changed up my process on that in the last year or so. Um, previously, I would do like two or three a week and just kind of bang them out whenever they came into my head. Yeah. Um, the last two or three years with changing over where I worked and going independent, I pretty much did like one a month or one every two months, which was terrible for somebody who actually pays money for a blog to actually set up. <laughs> so this year in 2020, my goal was once a week and I've been able to maintain that pretty well so far. So one a week at least. Yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. And um, is there a particular article that you can think of that was your favorite to write something that you just really loved it doesn't need to be one that's massively read or anything like that but yeah any particular favorites that you've got uh, one of my early ones was 75 things about deadlifts um, if I can find that one uh, it, it, a lot of it was just really dumb stuff here and there but some of it was like dropping sciences like when you do the deadlift you should feel like these muscles are engaged or here's a way to adjust your foot position and then others were like uh, Chuck Norris did deadlifts with Bruce Lee or sorry Bruce Lee did deadlifts Chuck Norris did the total gym and that's why Chuck Norris is a series of jokes and Bruce Lee is no joke but <laughs> little stuff like that right I was just quickly trying oh I found that um, 75 ways deadlifting just plain rocks yeah, yeah. there we go um, I'll read the first paragraph I loves me some deadlifts they drive me in my training as one of my main staples of almost each and every workout yeah, so we'll put that into the uh, article description as well because that looks really, really good. Was there a particular article that you had massive trouble with? You just couldn't get it quite right and it, it took ages and then you were finally able to nail it? Not really. I'm, I'm one of those kind of writers who forgets very quickly and uh, <laughs> is willing to say ready, fire, aim more than likely. So most of the articles that I put up, as long as I'm able to say, here's a topic that it covers, there's very few spelling mistakes. I've edited it a couple of times to make sure that it actually makes sense. Okay, cool, put it up, go. So I'm not really somebody who really struggles with hyper-perfectionism when it comes to a blog post. If I was submitting something to a publisher who was looking to pay me, then yeah, I would wanna make sure it was perfect. But for most of the blog posts, it's more just like, hey, I'm having a, a casual beer with a buddy at the pub and here's the topic that we're talking about and here's how I'm gonna relay it to you. You ever get nervous about putting any content out there? Not really, no. Yeah. Have you ever? Is that a process that's changed over time? Um, and now you just don't give a fuck and you, you started <laughs> like you were really worried about it? And, um, or is it just been the same all the way through? I mean, there's always going to be a small amount of imposter syndrome going on when you're putting up content. It just yeah. comes down to why would people want to listen to you? Or what if somebody says that you're wrong? Okay, well. Think that you're going to be wrong before you start and that we're already halfway there. 
And then if somebody shows you a better way of doing things, you can change your mind and update your thinking, and then you can be right again. But At what point did you, you realize? Sorry, go on. But part of it's also, you don't know who you are their only entrance into the fitness world. So there was a, an old saying years ago for NBC when they were talking about reruns for their sitcoms. They said, if, it's, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. So if somebody is using you as their point of entry into the fitness industry, they probably haven't seen it if you haven't put it out there. So they're not going to go searching out the names of people that you and I both know or that we look to for our resources or do their own research on PubMed. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But for anybody out there who hasn't had an entry into the fitness industry, if it's not coming from you, they haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at this point, what I like to ask people is about any mentors that they have, any people that um, maybe early on in their life, they really influenced your career. Maybe it's people that are talked about in international um, circles. Maybe it's someone that we've never heard of. But uh, what mentors played an important role in your life? Um, there's been tons, pretty much every coach who's worked for me or worked with me on trying to make me a less bad athlete. Um, my mom and dad for just their work ethic of trying to raise three young boys, me being the youngest and smallest of the three and then finding a way to actually have a fridge full of food and clothes on her back. Um, my brothers for just showing me about sports and about mechanics and everything that they do. And then in terms of, uh, the clinicians and stuff like that. Uh, Stu McGill is up there on the list. Then there's also people like um, somebody who's a physiotherapist in Edmonton that nobody's probably heard of, Mary Wood, um, Eric Cressy, Tony Gentilcore, um, tons and tons and tons of other trainers that I've been able to learn from. But yeah, pretty much everyone who I come into contact with who gives me something to learn from, I'll look up to them one way or another. So it's a matter of, okay, well, what can I get from this individual? What do they give? And then can I give it back to somebody else down the road? Yeah. Eric Cressy seems to be um, another level individual. I don't know where he stores all that information um, in his brain. I imagine someone would spend a day with him and you're going to come away from it feeling very tired and like your brain is just absolutely saturated with new stuff. <laughs> I, I think I have a theory that he is part cyborg and probably just the best part. But uh, yeah, he's a next level. Is he, is he like that sure. personally as well? Like not just on his um social media well the thing is like he doesn't necessarily like i've only been able to hang out with him a couple of times one was at tony's wedding one was when i was shadowing at chrissy sport performance but he seems to be like a hundred percent go all the time for strength and conditioning and for um coaching and all that kind of stuff so it's not like he does a lot of side projects it's like this is all everything in. and he goes i could be wrong on that and if he has other interests or side projects go for it but He's, now he's got uh, three kids, so I think he's doing a little bit more tea parties and dress-ups and stuff like that. But <laughs> Back when uh, the first couple of times I met him, he was just in 100%, and every minute of every day was occupied. So he definitely is a bit of a cyborg when it comes to that. Definitely. Um, you mentioned something about um, hiring and having PTs work for you. Is that still the situation that you have now? Well, in terms of me training other people, it's usually just like not necessarily hiring them, but um, them saying, hey, I want you to train me and take me through workouts and uh, me saying, okay, cool. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. So yeah, that's about the extent of it. Yeah. Once in a while, all... if I have to travel or teach a workshop somewhere, I'll get a couple of trainers that I know really well to 
kind of subcontract and train clients for a couple of sessions while I'm gone too. Yeah. Do you have um, a coach yourself or have you had a coach? Um, I don't just because I don't have as much time necessarily for me. And a lot of it is comes down to, I just don't want to pay for the obligation and then not be able to live up to my own desire to do it. Yeah. So it's something where I haven't been able to do, but I definitely see the value in doing it, but I just haven't been able to make that jump yet. The last time I had a coach was when I was actually in uh, university playing sports. So everything since then has just been on me. And this might put you on the spot. If you were to choose a coach, who would you go with? Ooh. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so many really good ones out there that I would actually have to do research and say, okay, well, who do I want to work with? Who, um, who would be willing to take me on? All that kind of stuff. So then it comes down to who would I actually gel with and part of it is like i'm pretty stubborn and pigheaded in my own way and i'm sure that other coaches would find like just being able to do their own things or say hey do this and me saying hey i completely didn't this week what do i do yeah. that would be a bit of a challenge <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of it comes down to i'd have to actually figure out a goal to shoot for and then spend time working towards it are you currently working towards any goals no not really yeah. trying not to gain the covid 15 while we're all on lockdown would probably be the big one Definitely. Are you still able to train at this point? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of uh, Zoom sessions and Skype sessions with clients. So, Are you able to uh, train yourself as well, yeah? Well, my house, we built a 700-square-foot gym in the basement with squat racks and dumbbells, kettlebells, bikes, heavy bag, all that kind of stuff. So I can train myself, but it's just putting the time in to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you find after a full day of um, coaching your drive to training can be somewhat diminished? Uh, somewhat is a very gentle term. <laughs> 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 Saying I have any drive to train by the end of the day is more ap apropos, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what I want to ask now is just for anyone that wants to get involved in the complete, the even, I keep getting that wrong, don't I? Uh, the even more hip, I can't get it right at all. Dean, what is that product called again? <laughs> <laughs> it's the even more complete shoulder and hip blueprint. Um, I liked how uh, I thought you were going to get that wrong. Then that would have been absolutely amazing. And um, for anyone that wants <laughs> to get involved in that, uh, where could they find out more information? Uh, if you want to go to my website, deansomerset.com, in the header, there's a banner called products. You just scroll down to complete shoulder and hip blueprint, the even more complete shoulder and hip blueprint, or you can go to complete shoulder and hip blueprint.com and check it out. But uh, yeah, it's a video series. There's two variations on it. The current one is 11 hours. You get continuing education credits. If you want to do the combo pack with both variations, there's 22 hours of continuing education info, all on shoulders and hips. Amazing. And I don't normally get, um, not nervous about this question, but there's never been more uncertainty about it. But what does the future hold for Dean Somerset once this COVID thing is out of the way? Well, hopefully getting back into a gym so I can train clients in person. Um, I love being able to do variations on programs through Skype and Zoom and stuff like that. But yeah. being able to give a client a high five or like tap a, a lat muscle and say, use this more is always going to be way more effective. Plus, a lot of clients actually like lifting weights. So getting back to a point where instead of just having bands and an 18 pound dumbbell, we can actually get a barbell on their back and get them doing stuff like that. Yeah. That's going to be fun. I just can't wait to give someone um, a fist bump in the gym when they nail the first squat or they, they get a personal best. I think a lot of personal trainers will be missing um, that 
that process because you don't get that when you're doing it over video. There's not, there's still going to be personal best, I'm sure. Um, but it is one of those things where it is awesome to be able to give them that high five, that fist bump, and I just can't wait for that to be the case again. I'm just loving yep, all I mean, the awkward interruptions from the pets or anything yep. like that from the virtual sessions. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, I've had a couple of clients do push-ups with a cat that decides to jump on their back or the dog <laughs> tries to go under them. And You're in their world now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rian, have you got any questions before we wrap this up? No, no, you've, you've, you've asked a couple of that I was going to ask. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've been writing so many notes as well. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, I was rattling through questions a little bit too fast. I started to panic midway through, but we got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Dean, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I hope um, when you have your next product out or we come up with the next version, I'm not going to try to say it again, but the complete hip and shoulder. But I can't say it at all. It's really bad. <laughs> the even more. <laughs> One day I will learn how to speak without getting my tongue tied. So, yeah, Dean, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I hope everyone out there enjoyed it immensely.